It's been a while, obviously, since we were here last. And on the schedule for today is the schedule, i.e. the calendar. So today and next time, our goal is to try and talk a little bit about the calendar. The calendar itself, obviously, is just a bunch of data, but through it, hopefully, we can get an understanding of several key things about Jews and time and how we manage the structure of the year. One of the things that many Jews, even quite religious ones, are pretty bad about is knowing what the months are, having a sense of the calendar, having an idea of when the calendar is happening and what's happening. And even these days, when you have the ability to put HebCal into your phone and just immediately download it, hi, uh, it's still kind of weird to have two calendars at once. Anybody here have HebCal on their phone? Have the Jewish calendar up all the time? Yes. It's, it's weird, right, that you're operating in two calendars at the same time. A few basic facts about the Jewish calendar. And by the way, I'm not an expert in this stuff at all, and I get really nerdy, and we're not going to try and go into it unless you're really into maths. But key thing is the Jewish calendar is not lunar or solar. It's lunisolar. It's both at the same time. So the Gregorian calendar is solar, right? The one we use, the Christian calendar, the solar calendar. It's based on the sun. There's 365 and a quarter days. They're divided into months. As you know, some of those months are 30 days, some are 31 days. No one really seems to know why, but there's a rhyme that helps you remember it if you can remember it from childhood. I don't know it, but some people do. You do it. Excellent. Um, the Muslim calendar, as a contrast, the calendar used in Islam, is a completely lunar calendar. So the months are 28 days following the cycle of the moon, and as a result, the things move throughout the course of the year. So Ramadan is not always the same time of year, because it is a certain month, and because the months are slightly shorter than they would be to correlate with the sun, as years go on, the calendar slips relative to the pattern of the sun, meaning that sometimes Ramadan is in July, and sometimes Ramadan is in January. And it's not random, it moves. So if last year it was in March, next year it might be late March, early April, and then after that it might be mid-April, and after, etc., which is when it starts. So the Hebrew calendar is neither of those things. Hebrew calendar is kind of both of them. At its root, it's a lunar calendar, which, like the Muslim one, follows the pattern of the moon. Our months are 28 days long also, meaning that the midpoint of every month is the full moon, and the beginning of every month is a new moon. So you can literally look outside at night, if it's not cloudy, and figure out what day of the month it is purely by how much moon you can see. And you get pretty good at it, actually, after a while. Kind of, oh, that's probably the 12th, because it's somewhere in between 10 and 15, based on how much moon you can see. And that's really beneficial, and we'll see how that plays out in terms of our observances of the calendar. But the key thing is that we wanted certain holidays, the rabbis wanted certain holidays, to fall at the same time every year. In particular, they wanted Pesach to always be in the spring. So the rabbis couldn't stomach the idea that Pesach would move, and sometimes it would be in the winter, sometimes it would be in the autumn. Pesach is a spring holiday, needs to be in the spring. So what they did is basically create a correction system. So the calendar is lunar, and it goes on a lunar cycle, but every once in a while, there's a kind of fix put in in order to correlate it to the solar calendar. So it kind of drifts off course and then gets corrected. The fix is done through a leap year system, uh, which actually is a leap month. So this is crazy, but every seven out of 19 years, not consecutively, but out of 19 years, seven of them will be leap years, which means instead of there being 12 months in the Hebrew calendar, there's 13, right? And that month that gets doubled is Adar, which we're gonna talk about next time. Um, and the months themselves are staying the same, except you get an extra Adar. So you do Adar, and they do Adar again, just to give you some more time so that the year stretches out, so that next year, Pesach will be corrected. This is why, famously, 
Sometimes it feels like Rosh Hashanah is really early. Sometimes it feels like Rosh Hashanah is really late. It's because it is actually a different time. Sometimes it's a whole month apart. So this year, which is not a leap year, 5783, and I'll say more about the counting of the years themselves, is not a leap year. Rosh Hashanah is on Friday night, for those paying attention, right? Not tomorrow, a week from tomorrow. Thank God. Yeah. And next year, which is a leap year, Rosh Hashanah will be in October. Right? It'll be, it'll be a month later. Because there'll be a whole other month inserted into next year that's not in this year. It's bonkers. It seems to work. There's some logic to it. And there's not other corrections as well. So that's the 7 out of 19 correction. There's also a part of the calendar that tracks cycles of the sun. There's how the sun moves relative to the Earth. If you've ever seen the analemma, which is the pattern of the sun moving through the sky, every like 38 and a half years, there's a special moment where the sun reaches the same point as it was before, and there's a blessing, a, a bracha, you can only do on that one day once every 38 years. It was like six years ago, so we've got to wait a while. Right? We count the years uh, differently depending on what is being counted. This is the confusing part. But there's a few confusing parts of this. But what year it is depends on what it is that you're counting. I'll say more about that. But let's just say what year it is right now. Right now, we consider it to be the year 5,783. What is that counting from? Well, arbitrarily, it's counting from the creation of the world. But lest we get any confusion, the rabbis did not believe the world was actually 5,000 years old, right? They didn't actually think that you could work backwards and say, yes, that was the first day. What they did is legitimately work backwards, look at the Torah and how long the Torah describes things as, add everything up from their own time, and try and calculate what they thought was the beginning based on that information. But that information is inherently flawed because obviously the first few days of creation, there's no sun, so you can't really count a day. And there's all sorts of other ways in which it's not really counting the same way we count. But they needed to come up with some arbitrary point to start the calendar at. And so they looked back to a point which they believed mathematically matched the Torah's description of the beginning of time, which is 5,783 years ago. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was September 19th that year, or would have been. Um, and there's even debates in a very rabbinic way about what time of day it was that the world was created. Obviously, it's a bit of a kind of intellectual gymnastics thing, because the Torah doesn't say that the world was created in one second. It says it was created over a period of time. So they recognize those contradictions, and they don't really resolve them. If you need a workable calendar, you need to have it fixed at a certain point in time. Obviously, the Christian calendar does that by fixing it on the year zero in which Jesus was born. Zero is an arbitrary year in the flow of time. I know that's probably something that you all know, but it is really hard to actually contextualize that when we live in a world where it's 2023. What is it 2023 from? From one guy's birth date a very long time ago. And there was nothing different about the year negative one or one BCE from one CE other than someone was born. Right? You could do that with your own lifetime. The Muslim calendar does the same thing. They choose an arbitrary point and start counting from it. It's not arbitrary, but it is relative to other calendars. In the Muslim calendar, it's the date that Muhammad went to Mecca, I believe, the date of the Hijra. So in the Muslim calendar, it's currently the year, I don't know, 14-something, I think. Forgive me, I have to check. So our calendar has its own quirks and particularities. There are four New Years. One of them is going to be observed next week, which we call Rosh Hashanah, which you all know is the New Year, probably. But there's three others as well. And each of them happen every year. Well, we're going to talk about two of those New Years happen in this span of the month. So we're going to start with Nisan and work our way over to Elul. So we're going this direction, right, just to make that clear. 
and uh, two of the New Year's happen here, which we'll talk about, and two of them happen in the second half, which we'll look at next week, which includes Rosh Hashanah, which is the first day of Tishrei. The months are named after Babylonian deities, mostly. These are not kind of intuitive Hebrew names. Some of these names are in the Torah, because it was just common parlance in the ancient Middle East that everyone used the same kind of names for the months. Some of these months had different names in the Torah, right? So the month of Nisan is often called Aviv in the Torah, which means springtime. Nisan is related to the kind of culture of the ancient Near East, as are many of these other ones, some more obviously than others. Tammuz is the most obvious example here, right? Just for context, Tammuz is part of an ancient Babylonian story involving the goddess Inanna and her half-human lover, Tammuz, and when he betrays her, and then she goes down to hell in order to reclaim him from her sister, who's the goddess of the underworld, and as a result, she spends half the year in the underworld and half the year above, which is the explanation for the fertility cycle, just like in the Greek myths with the story of Demeter and Persephone. Right? Everyone knows that story, maybe? Okay. That's a different class, right? Point is, Tammuz is a character in ancient Mesopotamian mythology, and also we use his name for the name of one of our months, which is bonkers considering the Torah is obsessed with not following the ways of the non-Jewish, non-Israelite people. Nonetheless, our calendar is entirely based on, or at least uses the words of the non-Jewish, non-Israelite people of the ancient Middle East. Almost none of these names are actually unique to us. And it's common in many aspects of the world to share many of these names. So the Muslim calendar, the Persian calendar, often share a lot of these or some of these names, and also some of the significance of particular months. Okay? Any questions about that? Before we dive in month by month here? Anyone know what the four New Year's are? New Year of Trees. Okay, good. So let's just make a little thing here. we got four New Year's. Actually, I'm going to do it under Sivan because nothing happens in Sivan. All right, four New Year's. All right, Daniel's got one of them, which is trees. Trees gather around New Year. What else gets a New Year? Hmm? That's, that's the, the fruit trees, yeah, that's them. Who else gets a New Year? I don't know. What, which, what, in Rosh Hashanah is not the New Year of trees, right? What's Rosh Hashanah the New Year of, you know? This is good. This is one of the first Mishnayot um, in the tractate on Rosh Hashanah. New Year of Kings is one of them. That's Rosh Hashanah. We'll come back to that. Trees is one of them. Animals is one of them. And the last one is nature itself. Okay? So, now this might seem crazy, but stick with me. There's four New Years. We also, in our lives today, have several New Years. Yes? You have January 1st, which is the calendrical New Year, which is obviously when we celebrate New Year's often, New Year resolutions, ball drops, New York City, Odlong Sang, all that stuff, right? But you also have April 5th. What's April 5th? Fine, and also taxes, right? <laughs> that, that's, that's what it's going for more so. Yeah, right? Your, your taxes, when you file them, don't go January, unless I've been doing my taxes wrong for six years, tell me if I have. Your taxes don't go January 1st to January 1st. They go April 5th to April 5th. Why? There's probably a good reason. Maybe it has to do with the pagan pre-Christian customs of Britain, which would be fascinating, by the way. The tax system is actually all pagan. Love that. Maybe. Doesn't really matter. You, that is a year you observe. So April 5th is the tax new year. Your taxes on April 4th are in a different year from your taxes on April 6th. Okay? What other New Year's are there? 
school teachers. Academic year. Academic year, right? September 1st is the beginning of the year. When you go to school, you don't start school on January 1st. You start school on September 1st. That is the academic new year. There's others as well, right? There's sometimes people talk about the fiscal new year for a business, which has its own way of calculating. Maybe it's July or our accounting years or whatever else. The year is often calculated different ways for different things in our own world. We just don't think about it. But if you can accept that, which is true, you have to, you have no choice, then we can also accept these four New Years. And we'll talk briefly about what this means, because we're going to dwell on the last one first when we talk about Nissan. So let's start with the one that's coming up next, which is the New Year of Kings, Rosh Hashanah, right? Is the first day of Tishrei. All these are the first day of the month, obviously. So the first of Tishrei, which we're not going to talk about next time. And the first of Tishrei, in the ancient Israelite system of halakha, which we call Judaism, is the observance for the new year of kings, and taxes, and government, and civic responsibility, courts, and things like that. So if you're a king, and you're living in ancient Israel, let's say you're King Solomon, the way that you count what year of your reign it is, is from first of Tishrei to first of Tishrei. Right? That is the new year for kings. When a new king would have been coronated, it would have been on the first of Tishrei. That's when new kings happen, that's the new year for kings. When you had to file your civic taxes, it would have been on the first of Tishrei. So you would have had to do all your counting. Our tax year would have been Rosh Hashanah, right? By the way, maybe that kind of makes sense a little bit, considering that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are kind of like doing taxes, right? Here's all the stuff I did. Here's all the stuff I did wrong. Going to try and make it up and maybe save some money here and there and then, you know, send the rest away to the government, hope for the best. There's a piece of Rosh Hashanah which is actually very much about accounting and taxes and kingship, right? All the stuff in the Rosh Hashanah service about how we're coronating God on this day, the Malchuyot that we say in the service, it's all about the fact that we are coronating the real king rather than the human kings. So Rosh Hashanah is the new year, but in a very civic-minded, academic sense regarding the king and the calendar of the state. And it was in the ancient world as well. New Year for Trees. What's the New Year for Trees? Again, it's in... Right? Heard it? Tu Bishvat? Right? What is two? Two is the 15th. By the way, that's just the Hebrew number 15. Two of Shvat. Right? That is the New Year for Trees. There's certain things that apply to trees. One of the rules of Halakha is you cannot eat the fruit from a fruit tree for the first three years it's growing. Anyone have fruit trees in their garden? You plant an apple tree, maybe. You cannot eat the fruit. You cannot pick the fruit for the first three years. You've got to let it grow and fall off and grow and fall off and grow and fall off. And year four, you can pick the fruit. Lots of reasons why. It's good farming practice, by the way. Um, it's also recognition kind of of, you know, just like you can't slaughter an animal in its first seven days of birth after it's born. I know it seems harsh, but yeah, it's in the, it's in the, in the Torah, right? You, it, you also cannot pick the fruit from a tree for the first three years of its flowering. So when you count those years, you don't do it from Rosh Hashanah. You count it from the 15th of the month of Shvat. It's the new year designated for trees. It's also, by the way, this obviously correlates times in the year in terms of the natural cycle. This is the time of the year when trees start to get their sap back into them in the middle of the winter, and when you start to see the first blossoms in Israel, right? In particular, the almond trees, which have beautiful blossoms, are the first ones, the bud, on to Shvat. If you're walking around Israel, you will see the tr almond trees start to bud. It just happens every year on that day. It doesn't make as much sense here when it's February 14th and you're freezing, but it makes a lot of sense in Israel, which is obviously the point. New Year for Animals is the first of Elul. 
which is the month we're in now, right? Which we're going to talk about in a minute. So when you talk about animals, again, the same thing. You can only bring a year-old lamb. That's often one of the restrictions in the Torah and Leviticus. Lamb has to be a year old. The year is calculated from Elul. Elul to Elul is when you calculate the age of animals. Different than trees, different than kings. The last one, which is what we're going to talk about now, is the generic uh, new year for everything else, and the new year for nature, which is actually the first of Nisan. So in the Torah, when it talks about the year, the Torah conceives of the year beginning in Nisan. Right? In the Torah, many times it talks about the months by numbers, and it calls Nisan the first month. Right? And so that's why we're going to start in Nisan, not at Tishrei. Even though, in a week's time, we're going to be at Tishrei, and we're going to sit there going, today is the birthday of the world. It's all a lie. There's a really interesting rabbinic debate about what day the world was created. Was it the first of Nisan or the first of Tishrei? And there's two rabbis who have a fight about it, and they never really resolve it. But eventually, Rosh Hashanah decided, like, it fell onto the first day of Tishrei, but it was meant to be on the first day of Nisan. The main reason that Rosh Hashanah didn't fall on the first day of Nisan is probably because that's also when non-Jewish Middle Eastern cultures also observe the new year. It's often called Nowruz in the, in the Persian calendar, and is observed in Persia, in Mesopotamia, in any Arab-speaking country. First of Nisan is the historical new year. Why? What happens on the first of Nisan? What's going on in Nisan? Springtime, right? Usually this is March, April. Usually. Right? It's definitely springtime. These three here on this board are springtime. In our calendar, the way that we think about seasons, these three are summer. So for the Jewish calendar, for the Hebrew calendar, the year really starts in Nisan. Although we don't really think about it that way, that's what the Torah talks about. Best evidence of this, by the way, when the Torah does talk about Rosh Hashanah, which it does, it calls it Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTruah and Yom HaDin, the Day of Judgment, it says, on the first day of the seventh month. Okay? So that, that's obviously, this is the first month, if that's the seventh month. So actually, our Rosh Hashanah observance next week is the first day of the seventh month of the year. It's just that it's the new year for kings, which is way more interesting than just thinking about it as the new year, the creation of the world. It actually isn't about the creation of the world. It's about a kind of civic accounting for our deeds. We'll get there next week. We've got a whole week to prepare for that. Nisan has lots of exciting stuff in it. What's the main event of Nisan? Passover, yes. So, when is Passover? It's when it comes. When is it in Nisan? 15th. Why is it the 15th? Full moon. That's my full moon diagram. Do you like that? 15th is the beginning of Pesach. It's always the 15th. It's always going to be the 15th. On the 14th, the day before, there's the fast of the firstborn, right? Which is related to Pesach. What's the fast of the firstborn? Anyone here firstborn? Just you. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. For my mom, yes. For my dad, no. Okay, so then you don't count. Well, actually, some people say from other parents. Um, but regardless, the fast of the firstborn is the day before Pesach, and it's one of the minor fasts of the calendar in which people who are firstborn children are expected to fast from sunrise to sunset. right? And the idea is that it's kind of a symbolic recognition of the fact that all of the firstborn of Egypt had to be killed for us to be freed, and so we, the firstborn of Israel, kind of recognize that we owe that. We're taking kind of a day off of eating. Also, it's good prep for Pesach when you're going to eat a huge amount of food the next day anyway. 
Okay? Now, important in talking about the calendar is the distinction between things that are in the Torah and things that the rabbis introduced. Some things are Torah. In Aramaic, in the Talmud, it's called Deoraita, which means from the Torah. And other things are rabbinical, called Dirabbanon, from the rabbis. So Pesach is a great example of a Deoraita holiday. It is in the Torah many times. It says what to do on Pesach. It explains that on the evening of the 14th, you start to do this ritual, and on the 15th, you do this ritual, and then for seven days, you eat matzah, and then you celebrate Pesach, and you talk about the exodus from Egypt, and you tell your children to ask questions. A lot of it's there, right? Not everything's there. What's not there is the Seder, right? The Seder, as we do it, is not in the Torah. The observance of Pesach in the Torah is all about lamb. Who likes lamb? Nobody? Paul likes lamb. Good job, Paul. So, the evening of Pesach, what you are meant to do, according to the Torah, is each family goes and finds a lamb. Actually, they're meant to get it on the first of Nisan, right? Which, of course, is the new year. So the first, you're meant to get the lamb, and you bring it home, and you'll watch it. Right? You make sure nothing bad happens to it. You keep an eye on the lamb. Keep it close. Maybe you put it in the bathtub. I don't know. And on the 14th, you kill it, and you roast it on like a spit. It has to be roasted on fire. You can't boil it. You can't saute it. You can't put it in your air fryer. you got to roast it. Right? <laughs> Imagine the air fryer big enough to put a whole lamb in it. You roast it. And that night, according to the Torah, you sit with your shoes on, and your coat on, and like your keys in your hand, and you eat the lamb as fast as you can, and you can't leave any of it overnight, and you tell the story of the Exodus, and you have the children ask questions, and then for the next seven days, you only eat unleavened bread. And we do part of that, obviously. Sounds familiar, hopefully. The part we don't do is the lamb part. Right? Some, some Jewish adjacent communities do, notably the uh, the Shomronim, the Samaritans, who still exist, a very small group of Samaritans still exist in the land of Israel in a place called Mount Gvizim, which is in Shechem, just outside of Nablus in the West Bank. I don't recommend going there if you value your life. But what you can do is go on Pesach and watch them do this ritual. They take a lamb, they kill it, they roast it, everyone has a big barbecue with the shoes on and their coat on and they're ready to go. Now, obviously, the shoes on and the coat on thing is like the symbolism of being ready, right? You're reenacting. We had to be ready to leave. Hence the thing about matzah and it being unbaked. And also the lamb is symbolic in many ways of the blood that was used in order to protect the Israelites from the angel that went through and destroyed everything. There's lots of amazing symbolism to it. Once the Israelites were exiled from their land, the rabbis kind of discouraged the lamb thing, right? Outside of the land of Israel, they kind of discouraged it, fell by the wayside. You weren't supposed to ever kill an animal outside of the confines of the temple, except for Pesach when you did it at home. So once the temple wasn't there, the rabbis kind of discouraged really any animal sacrifice, and gradually they replaced animal sacrifices with other things. So since about 200 CE, we've been doing the Seder instead of the, uh, instead of the actual Pesach. So the Pesach is the lamb, by the way. That's what the Pesach is. That's why you have a bone on the Seder plate, and we hold it up. At this point, everyone's too hungry to care, and we say, this is the lamb that our ancestors sacrificed, right? You also have other things on the Seder plate, all of which are symbols. The Seder that the rabbis create has nothing to do with the Torah, right? And is, in fact, a direct imitation. It is a copy directly of the common practice in Greco-Roman philosophical schools to have kind of symposia. Anyone read Plato's, uh, what's it, symposium? Yeah, Plato's symposium? No? Different one? Anyway, recommend it. It's a bit 
bit dry, but philosophers used to sit around on couches, a bit like this, shaped in a U, and they lean on their left side like this, and servants would bring them food and they'd eat from it, and they'd discuss philosophy until the wee hours of the night, and then they'd drink a lot of wine, and they'd fall asleep, right? And the rabbis who considered themselves philosophers, who lived in this Greco-Roman world, spoke Greek and Latin, and were very familiar with this, basically cribbed the whole thing as a ritual and said, we'll just do this for Pesach. We'll sit on our left side, casually relaxing, right? You're meant to kind of lay down on your left side, just like they did in the triclinium, the three-part couch. And you're meant to have food served to you by other people. And you're meant to discuss the story and argue about this and that and whatever. And you're meant to drink a fair amount of wine. And by the end of it, you're singing these ridiculous, raucous songs that make no sense. Chadgadya, looking at you, makes no sense whatsoever. All of it, even Chadgadya, as crazy as that might seem, is based directly on these philosophical symposia where people would sit around and argue and drink and gradually devolved into kind of a crazy, wild evening. So the rabbis structured something that they were familiar with and reinterpreted it, not about a philosophical debate, but instead about the story of the Exodus. And hence we have the Seder. It has nothing to do with what's in Torah. It's still a lot of fun. By the way, so much evidence for this, it's like overwhelming once you start to look at it. Afikomen, anyone speak Greek? Probably not. Usually people don't speak Greek. Afikomen is the Greek word for dessert. Right? The, the whole thing is framed around a, a Greek philosophical meal. Um, okay, at the end of Pesach, we have how many days of Pesach? So, seven days in theory. Here in the diaspora, we observe any Yom Tov for two days. Right, so first day of Pesach, which is Yom Tov, two days. Last day of Pesach, which is Yom Tov, two days. As a result, it turns into eight days. The whole thing about observing two days of Yom Tov in the diaspora is really complicated, but basically, the way that we used to be able to tell whether it was Rosh Chodesh, which is the first day of every month, is someone would go out from Jerusalem, look in the sky, and if they couldn't see the moon, they'd come back and go, it's Rosh Chodesh. And then they'd send, they had a fire beacon system, right, like the Great Wall of China. Every city had a big beacon, and if it was Rosh Chodesh, someone would climb up and light the beacon, and they'd see it from the next town over, and they'd light their beacon, and they'd see it from the next town over, and they'd light their beacon, and a kind of signal fire would go across the whole country, and everyone would know, oh, it's Rosh Chodesh now. And so then, they would be able to count the right number of days in order to observe the calendar. When the Jews and the Israelites started moving outside the land of Israel, and they were in Alexandria and Egypt and in Syria and Dororiopos and wherever else, this system fell by the wayside. And as a result, the rabbis, the early rabbis, like pre-temple destruction rabbis, fixed a calendar and said, you know what, forget it. Don't worry about sighting the moon. We're just going to say, today is the day that the new year starts. And because when they did go and sight the moon, there was some ambiguity. Maybe it's cloudy. Maybe the fire isn't working. Maybe you don't hear it's actually Rosh Chodesh until the next day. What they did is the ones that were really far away, who may not hear right away, would keep two days of everything just in case. And even though by the time they fixed the calendar, hundreds of years after that, and a long time after they realized that that wasn't a great system, they still kept the idea that if you're not in the land of Israel, you should keep two days purely as a memory of the fact that once upon a time people were really bad at getting information out there. And as a result, we still do it, right? So we still have Pesach day one and day two, Yom Tov, Pesach day seven and eight, Yom Tov, even though it's completely unnecessary. It's a big debate in the kind of religious Jewish world because in Israel, of course, they don't keep an extra day. Israel, Pesach is seven days. There's one Seder night, as it's meant to be. There's only meant to be one Seder night. The reason we have two Seder nights 
is because we keep two days of Pesach day one. And actually, day one and day two are the same thing. This applies to all of the Yom Tovim. We're going to talk, if we have time, if not, we'll do it next time, about kind of the structure of Jewish time, which is really important. We have a pyramid. Anyone seen the pyramid before? Not like the pyramid pyramid, but a pyramid about this? No? Okay, we haven't even gotten halfway through the first month, but I'm um, come back to the pyramid. Maybe we should do the pyramid now. Let's do the pyramid now, then we'll race it, okay? So a pyramid is quite important because Jewish time is structured around certain categories, and there's, hi- there's a hierarchical sense of time. It's all kind of mind-bending, actually, when you start to get into it, but you'll start to notice it if you pay attention to the calendar. So first of all, on the bottom, the generic default time, when nothing else is happening, is called Chol. I'm going to write in Hebrew because it's easier for me. Chol, which we usually translate as weekday, okay? Uh, Chol just means kind of profane or not holy. It means just regular, right? Average, default. Yeah? also means sand, interestingly. Okay? So Chol is everyday weekday time. On a weekday, you do not read the Torah. Or if you do read the Torah, which you do on two weekdays, Monday and Thursday, you only read three aliyot from it, right? So there's several ways to chart how significant different times are. One of those ways is how many aliyot do you read? So I'm going to put how many aliyot you read from the Torah on each one. So you do know what I mean when I say how many aliyot you read from the Torah? Right? How many we divide it into? So we do three, okay? Uh, next up is Rosh Chodesh, right? So a Rosh Chodesh is a weekday, which is also uh, the, uh, the first day of a new month. So it is the first day of any month, right? Including all of the ones here. On that day, if it, we are in synagogue, we read... Yeah, and we read an extra bit. We do Musaf, right, which is the extra service. Um, and as a result, we often end up reading four aliyot. Okay, there's some nuances to it. But we do... There's, there's two numbers to be had here. One is how many times you do the Amidah, which is actually... Let's talk more about that for a minute. How many times you do the Amidah, and also how many aliyot you do. But you do three, the Amidah three times on the regular weekday, right? Evening, morning, afternoon. You do it four times on a, a Rosh Chodesh, because you add an extra one called Musaf in. Um, on Shabbat, oh no, we're not going to get to Shabbat yet, actually, we're not there yet. Instead, we're going to talk about, uh, what's next? Am I forgetting anything? I don't think so. Next is Yom Tov, right? So Yom Tov literally means, what's it mean? Good day, right? Which is obviously also kind of the origin of holiday, holy day. And uh, that includes Pesach, right? At least day one of Pesach and day seven of Pesach, or day one and two and day seven and eight, depending on where you live. Also includes things like uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, although we talk about Yom Kippur. Also includes, so all three pilgrimage festivals. That's really what we mean by Yom Tov, is the three pilgrimage festivals, the Shalosh Regalim, which are Pesach, Sukkot, and Shavuot. We'll come back to all of them in due course. Those are our holidays. On those, we read five aliyot from the Torah, right? And, and we don't do the, the, um, the Amidah five times. We read five aliyot from the Torah. There's one holiday that's even specialer that we do. What? No, actually, that, that's a weird one. Simchas Torah isn't actually a holiday. It's day two of Shemini Yatzeret, which is also a confusing holiday, but it is Yom Tov. So Simchat Torah is Yom Tov. Yeah, because it's the end of Sukkot. People, we think about it as different because we don't like Sukkot, but it's actually still Sukkot. Uh, after this, going with six aliyot. When do we read six aliyot? Only one day of the year. Yom Kippur. 
we read six aliyot. So it's like a Yom Tov, but it's a little bit better, right? Because we read six aliyot over the course of it. But there's one day, actually we read seven aliyot. When is that? Shabbat. Shabbat. So the result is, you end up with this kind of pyramid of how important different time is and how sacred time is based on how, how many aliyot we read from the Torah. It's one way to map it out, okay? And so where we are also has restrictions. So with, with more aliyot also comes more restrictions, typically. Yeah, actually, this is a bit flip because Yom Kippur is more restrictions than Shabbat when you think about the fact that we can't eat and stuff like that. But Shabbat actually numerically has way more restrictions because the 39 categories of prohibited labor we talked about last term in this class. But, like, for instance, Shabbat, regarding relative to Yom Tov, less restrictions. Right? So Yom Tov, you can cook. But on Shabbat, you can't cook. But on both of them, you can't write. So the holier you get, the more restrictions there are. Right? Rosh Chodesh, there are certain things you're supposed to do, fun things you're supposed to do to celebrate the holiday, which you didn't, wouldn't do on a weekday. So there's more stuff to do, more restrictions, more specificity, but also more holiness as you go up the pyramid. Does that make sense? Okay, it's just helpful to know, because we're going to try and get a sense of what these different holidays are and how they work. So, for instance, during Pesach, and we're still on Pesach, but this will apply to Sukkot as well, right? Day one of Pesach, one, and for us, two, are Yom Tov, right? Which means, you know, we, we don't, we more or less have the same observances as Shabbat, except the exclusions that are not in Yom Tov but are in Shabbat are we can cook, we can carry things, and we can, uh, like, do anything we need to for our own personal well-being, right? So if you need to take a shower, you can take a shower on Yom Tov, but you really shouldn't on Shabbat. So Yom Tov is a little bit less relaxed than Shabbat, but it's day one and two of Pesach. You can carry it. You can carry on Yom Tov, but you can't on Shabbat. So even in, like, Meir Sharim, you'll see people pushing a pram on Yom Tov, but you wouldn't see it on Shabbat. That's what Rosh Hashanah you shouldn't carry. That's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's, some people, I mean, the reality is a lot of people kind of do more based on what they saw and what they learned rather than the, the actual law. But Rosh Hashanah does not have the same restrictions as Shabbat. Now this year, Rosh Hashanah is on Shabbat. Yeah. But let's say day two Rosh Hashanah, right? Which is not a second day Yom Tov outside of the land of Israel. It just so happens that that Rosh Chodesh on Tishrei is two days long. So day two Rosh Hashanah, which is Sunday, you can carry and you can cook. So if you're having people over lunch, for Rosh Hashanah lunch on Sunday, even if you were completely Shomer Mitzvot and you really want to do it right, you could cook lunch. Now what you can't do, interestingly, what you can't do is light a new flame but you can transfer a flame that was lit before the holiday. So what you'll see in Judaica shops is a big old candle, looks like this, that lasts for at least three or four days. You light the candle before the holiday starts, and when you want to light your stove, you light it with the candle instead of lighting a new flame, and then you cook from that. So there's kind of nuances and ways of separating it, but there's actually many things you can do on Yom Tov that you can't do on Shabbat. Many people will use electricity on Yom Tov that they wouldn't use on Shabbat. By the way, I think you can use electricity on both. That's a different question. Okay, so day one, day two, Yom Tov. Day three, four, five, six is called Chol Hamoed. Okay? Now, you should know partially what that means, because Chol is weekday. Right? So these are the weekdays, Chol Hamoed, in the festival. So these days of Pesach, it's still Pesach. I can't spell English. It's still Pesach. You still got to eat matzah. Really sorry about that. You still can't have chametz in your house, 
but you can go to work and you can do everything else normally because it's a weekday, but it's a weekday in the middle of the festival. Chol Hamoed. Okay? Chol Hamoed. Yeah. If you say it fast enough, it sounds like, you know, it's more fun. Chol Hamoed. Right? Uh, this is often when people go on holiday, right, in, in Israel and in religious communities. It's like, oh, well, we got a couple of days. You're not really supposed to go to work. But you can do work if you want to. You can write, you can use your phone, you can whatever. But you should kind of take it easy, because it's still a festival, and you should be enjoying yourself, eating your matzah with butter on it. Uh, day seven, and for us, day eight, is also again Yom Tov. So this is a good pattern that we see often. First day, last day, Yom Tov. Middle day is Chol Moed. Okay? The day after Pesach ends, which is always going to be, depending on whether it's Israel or not, the 22... 22nd or 23rd of Nisan is a holiday for some is really North African communities I don't know if you've experienced it more called Mimuna it's a very small holiday you won't see it very often but very popular in Israel now yeah I've been to Mimuna it's some good fun right so Mimuna originated in Jewish communities in North Africa who during Pesach would give all of their chametz to their Muslim neighbors and their Muslim neighbors would hang on to it and as Pesach was leaving, on the end of the seventh or eighth day, all of their neighbors would bring all their chametz back to them, and they'd all have a big feast together, where they'd make what's called mufleta, which are like kind of flat, doughy pancakes, and eat lots of chocolate and candy and have a party into the wee hours of the night. It's good fun, right? Kind of, especially after the end of Pesach. It's a bit, has some, remis- uh, some um, reminiscence of kind of Catholic kind of Lent carnival type things, where after this week of holding back from eating all this dough, now you're just like throwing fried dough around the room as much as you can. It's been three hours, right? You like haven't turned the kitchen over yet, but you've got all this dough everywhere. It's good fun. Uh, you won't see it too often in Ashkenazi communities because it's very specific in many ways to the Muslim Jewish experience of North Africa, but because of Israel's salad bowl approach to everything, now Mamuna is almost universal in Israel, right? So every year the Prime Minister is expected to go to a Mamuna thing, and there's always photos, and he's wearing a kaftan, it's the whole thing. It's a little bit orientalist, actually, if we're being honest, but it's good fun. Okay? Only one other thing relevant to us in our modern world in Nissan, the 27th Nissan, is Yom HaShoah. Okay? Yom HaShoah is the first of three. There's a trifecta of modern Israeli holidays which happen during this time of year. They are the 27th of Nisan, and then the 4th and 5th of Iyar. The 4th is Yom HaZikaron. Zikaron. And the 5th is Yom HaTzma'ut, right? So, it's be much easier to write in Hebrew. So, um, there's some debate about Yom HaShoah. Yom HaShoah is actually in Israel, Yom HaShoah Vagvura. Shoah is the Holocaust, and it's meant to be the day of commemoration of the Holocaust. There was a huge debate about when to do that among the rabbis in the early state of Israel. And originally, the dominant opinion was, let's just do it on Tisha B'Av, which we'll get to in a minute, because that's when all the sad stuff happens. So that's when we should do it. Right? We don't need a special day. We already have a day for sad stuff. Just put it in there. It's a container for sad. But other people wanted to actually make a special day for it. Now, there's quite a bit of controversy, because Nisan is meant to be a happy month. right? Because of Pesach, because of New Year, you're supposed to be happy. It's supposed to be joyful. You're not supposed to be sad during Nisan. So putting Yom HaShoah in the end of it felt like mm, a lot of people still are very uncomfortable with it. Regardless, it's become kind of accepted. 27th Nisan is now Yom HaShoah. The reason they chose that day is because it coincides with the day that the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising began during the Second World War in Warsaw. Right? Interestingly, this is a sidebar, but it's really interesting in terms of Holocaust commemoration and how different people do it. Here in the UK, obviously in the synagogue, we tend to mark Yom HaShoah in some way. 
but also we mark with the local civic government the Holocaust Memorial Day, which is the 27th of January. There's no relationship to the 27th of Nissan. The reason it's the 27th of January is that the UN, in like 2003, by the way, that's how long it took them to get their act together to do this, decided there should be a universal international Holocaust Memorial Day, and the day they chose was the day Auschwitz was liberated, right, which is the 27th of January. There's a huge difference ideologically in the choice of those days. We chose the day of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising because the story we're trying to tell with Yom HaShoah and Yom HaShoah Valgvura and the resistance is one about kind of resistance and valor and suffering, but in the context of kind of fighting back, etc. The reason that the UN chose the 27th of January, which is the day Auschwitz was liberated, is because they wanted to tell a story about how the West actually saved everyone in the end, which is complete and utter bullshit, right? But it makes them feel better. So when when everyone stands around, the anyway. sorry, the yes, they they leave that part out that it was the Russians. Yeah, I know. But the West is broadly construed as long as we don't deal too much in it. So the very interesting difference, and people have some people have really strong feelings. I know Holocaust survivors who only want to do the 27th of January and think that's the right way to do it. I know other Holocaust survivors who say no, it's about Yom Hashoah. And there's other people who go, you know what, they're both stupid. Uh, there's a wide range of opinion, but. In Israel, in Yom HaShoah, basically everything stops. There's a two-minute siren at 10 a.m., and what uh, you may have seen that is quite eerie, right? At 10 a.m. when the siren goes off, everyone literally stops what they're doing. Like the motorway, everyone just gets out of their car. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty weird, right? Yeah. But that, that's the point. It's kind of the eeriness of it. And like the television all day is just Holocaust documentaries, which is a bit much, actually. You could turn on the TV. It's just not on stop. And, but that's the idea, right? It's like, we're going to set aside a day for this. It's also part of a modern Israeli story because it's linked very closely. I mean, it's less than a week, really a week later, when we get to Yom HaZikaron. Yom HaZikaron is the memorial day for soldiers who have died serving in Israel's armies and also victims of terrorist attacks. And every year, again on the television, there is a scrolling list of all the names, right? Every year, everyone goes to the cemetery. There's a big observance at Mount Herzl, which is kind of national military cemetery in Jerusalem. And it's a really emotive thing because pretty much every Israeli knows someone who's died in combat, right? Or more than one someone's. So Yom HaZikaron is a really deep, sad day, only shortly after Yom HaShoah, and then immediately after. So this is the fourth of ER, this is the fifth of ER, so the night after Yom HaZikaron ends becomes Yom HaAtzmaut, which is, of course, Israeli Independence Day, which is indeed the day that the war, the civil war was won in 1947-1948, correlates to whatever it was, May 14th, 1948, I think it was. And Yom Ha'atzmaut is all about, obviously, celebrating independence for Israel. There is usually in the evening fireworks, kind of modeled after the American model, I suppose, to some degree. There's several things that are quite specific to Yom Ha'atzmaut. Uh, air shows, right? There's always kind of fighter jets flying over everywhere. And there's like big blow-up inflatable hammers. Yeah? Which probably goes back to the Maccabees, actually, doesn't it? The kind of hammer symbolism, which is really interesting. And everyone's barbecuing. Don't know why? Everyone's barbecuing. Everyone's outside, like the park. I remember in living in Jerusalem, walking past Gonzaka, and the entire park is just full of people barbecuing. Don't know where they came from, don't know where they got the barbecues. Just everyone's barbecuing. Um, so Yom HaShoah and Yom HaZikron and Yom HaTzmaut, they're all modern Israeli holidays. Obviously, I don't have to tell you, they're not from the Torah. Right? None of them have any correlation to any type of Jewish observance before the last hundred years. But they tell a certain story, right? Which is the typical Jewish story. They tried to kill us. They partially succeeded. But ultimately, we were victorious. 
which is a very effective way to talk about civic life, and it works very well for the Israeli story, whether it's accurate, whether it's kind of what we want to be teaching children, whatever. I'm not going to go into that now, but it's an interesting thing to think about. In ER, ER is otherwise quite a boring month, something happens on the 14th of ER, which is Pesach 2. You didn't know there was second Pesach? There's second Pesach. It's literally called Pesach Sheni. This is in the Torah, right? Where Moses says, if anyone missed Pesach 1 because you were outside the camp, right? And keep in mind, many people would have been outside the camp because they were impure, they had a seminal mission, they may have been bleeding, whatever it was. They were outside the camp, uh, kind of banished. If they missed Pesach, next month, a month later, they can do Pesach again. Uh, and so you get kind of the second chance at Pesach. So you'd have a small group of people. It would have been really weird, right, if all your neighbors walked past you, like, roasting your own lamb. They would be like, oh, missed Pesach. It's Pesach too. This is his chance. But some people still today eat matzah on Pesach Sheni, even though, obviously, we can do Pesach anytime we want because none of us are being kicked outside the camp because of seminal emissions. Nonetheless, Pesach Sheni remains kind of on the calendar one month after Pesach, original Pesach, OG Pesach. Two other more modern things emerge during ER. One of them, uh, which is the 18th day of ER, um, is, but it actually numbered as 33 of the Omer, we're talking about the Omer, is Lag Omer, right? Lag means 33. Uh, numbers are letters, so we pronounce letters as words sometimes, hence Lag and two and all of that. They're actually numbers. So Lag Omer, 33rd day of the Omer, is a, probably, it's a totally made up thing, actually, to be honest. Um, there's a rabbinic tradition very early on that there was a plague in, uh, that affected a bunch of the rabbinic students in the first century, and that on the 33rd day of the Omer that year, the plague ended, and so we kind of celebrate and have a nice day of happy things. In reality, the plague was actually probably the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132 CE when the Jews rebelled against Rome for the third time and lost horribly. And the plague that killed all of the students was probably the fact they were committing kind of this guerrilla war against the Romans. And it was probably, this is the one day of victory or whatever else. It feeds into a medieval tradition that Shimon bar Yochai, who was a rabbi of the first century, died, second century, died on that day. He probably didn't die on that day. It's a scribal error. Like, it's, like, since been proven that the first thing that said that was actually a typo. Nonetheless, the observance of Lagomer today is very much connected to Shimon bar Yochai. The idea that he wrote the Zohar, which he didn't, um, and the, the observance of his, his yard site as a day where everyone kind of builds bonfires, right? Key thing is bonfires, that's, a, that's fire. And uh, bow and arrow, right? Which again is a hint to the fact that we're still observing the whole thing about resisting the Romans. We just don't know it because we're all the bow and arrow. And haircuts. Now, the reason there's haircuts is because the Omer started here. I really could use another color. Right, what is the Omer? The Omer is this orange line. What is the Omer? What do we do with it? We gotta count it. Yes. 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 Yeah, there's a few times a year that are sad, not for any particular reason, other than sometimes we just love being sad. And the Omer tends to be one of them. It's all going back to this kind of story legend that's not clear about the plague, but we're not clear what plague. And actually, the plague may have been violent resistance to oppressive authority. We're not clear on that. But the Omer is very specifically in the Torah. It says, from 
the day after Pesach, it actually doesn't say that, but that's how we interpret it, but go with me. For the day after Pesach, you should bring a barley offering each day. So a sheave of barley, this is the middle of the barley harvest. And you should shake it or wave it before the priest. And you should count each day that you do that. So that's what you do. And it says specifically, you should count seven weeks of seven days, which is where we get 49 days of the Omer. So we count from the second day of Pesach every day in the evening, you're supposed to find a moment, stop and say a blessing, and say, today is day seven of the Omer, which is one week. It's really hard to do, actually. I've got apps with timers and ding-dongs and whatever. I still often miss one day here and there. It's just really hard to remember to do something every day for 49 days, but it's a cool practice, actually, to undertake. And the result is it's leading you up to the beginning of Sivan and to the next major holiday, which is Shavuot, which we'll come to in a minute key thing about the Omer is that indeed many people see it as a time of mourning, and most people won't do weddings during the first part of the Omer. Some people will start from Lag Omer to do weddings, and some people will only do weddings in Lag Omer and then stop again until the Omer is done. So it depends on your personal custom. And also how much mourning stuff you do also depends. So like David Rabin, who loves mourning, right, and I make fun of it all the time, any time to be sad, he'll do it. He observes the mourning customs of the Omer quite strictly, so he won't shave during the Omer. So David Rabin, on the 32nd day of the Omer, has an awesome beard every year. And then if you come on Lagba Omer, he'll shave it off. Because it's the day that you can have haircuts and you can shave and whatever else. For the people who keep the morning customs. I tend to be, I feel like there's enough morning in Judaism. I don't want to add more of it. But I tend to be quite relaxed about it. But David loves some good morning. Right? And he's, he'll be the first one to admit that. So we work our way through ER, mostly counting the Omer, and leading up to... Uh, Shavuot, which is in Sivan. It is the only thing, really, that happens in Sivan. It is the sixth day of Sivan, and for us in the diaspora, the seventh day of Sivan. And it is the second of the major pilgrimage festivals. Interestingly, two of the pilgrimage festivals, Pesach and Sukkot, which will be over here, uh, are week-long festivals. Shavuot is not. It's just a day. Right? Shavuot has many different layers of observance. Again, pyramids. All of these three major festivals have similar layers. At the base of it, it's about agriculture, right? They originally were agricultural festivals. That's what they celebrated. Pesach as well, by the way. The springtime, the birth of new things, freedom. It's all really symbolic. It's something very basic and very pagan, which is about nature. And then over time, we added on the story of the Exodus goes on Pesach as well, and also some other stuff like the Seder goes on Pesach. The holidays become like containers, right? Where you have this holiday, something happens, oh, put it in there. And then it's like Pesach is about the Paschal Lamb and the springtime and the Exodus and some other stuff, and it's just, we just go with it, right? It's just how it is. Shavuot is the most obvious example of that, probably, in that Shavuot is about the ancient barley harvest, probably originally, and marks the end of the Omer period, and thus the kind of middle of the harvest season, right? Everything is growing, growing, growing. This is really, sorry, not the end, the beginning of the harvest season. This is the first time you're really starting to harvest stuff. The barley is what ripens first in Israel. So this is the barley harvest when you start it. Over time, that took on a secondary meaning. So the agricultural meaning is down here. Then it took on a secondary meaning, which is about history, which the rabbi said, oh, by the way, in addition to being the barley harvest, it's also the day we got the Torah at Mount Sinai. Just so happens, it's the same day. And so, which by the way, if you count in the Torah from when they were at Sinai to when they, it actually works out pretty well. They're not making that up. So Shavuot then is also about receiving the Torah, Matan Torah, uh, in, on Mount Sinai. And the two kind of just go together. So the result is, we have a holiday where we 
we talk about receiving the Torah, right? And we stay up all night reading the Torah and studying. Some of us do, at least. Those who made it to 4 a.m. Yeah, you did. You did. Next year, you guys, 4 a.m., we're going to do it. It was fun. And um, it was caffeinated. And the result is we also have greenery in the synagogue. Why? Right? Someone comes in, there's flowers all over the synagogue. What does that have to do with receiving the Torah? Nothing. It's just that the holidays are stacked up. So part of it is the agricultural. Look, we harvested the stuff in the fields and brought it in. One of the things that was done on Shavuot in the Bible, in the Torah, is you would bring the first fruits of your own harvest. So if you had that apple tree, which has now grown three years and is bearing fruit, and you can bring the fruit for the first time, the first apple that fell off the tree or picked off the tree, you'd bring to the priest and you'd say, here's my first fruits, and you'd make a sacrifice of it. That also happened on Shavuot. Hence, we bring greenery and flowers and stuff into the synagogue to decorate it as our kind of first fruits offering. But we also mark the giving of the Torah by staying up all night studying Torah and drinking coffee and eating cheese. Why cheese? Mostly because the Torah is often compared to milk, and so we eat dairy products. But also, it's a good duplication. Part of it is, yes, the Torah is compared to milk. Part of it is also, there was something to do with the dairy the dairy and when the dairy was kind of cultivated and when it was then going to cheese be ready, this is the time cheese would be ready, right? So that people ate cheese. So these things all kind of layer on over each other. This religion's been around for 3,000 years. It gets really sloppy. No one sat down and was like, I'm going to organize this very neatly. It just kind of happened over time. And the holidays are kind of snowballs, right, where they go along and they gather more and more stuff as they go along. Okay? Um, that's it for Sivan. Sivan is a very quiet month. And now, as we get out of Sivan, we're really going into high summer, really. So we're going to quickly try and do the rest of the summer, but there's less going on, so don't worry. Tammuz, there's very little happening. Tammuz is the worst part of the year from the point of view of the Torah. The summer is the worst thing, right? Because everything's dry, everything's dead. Remember the story of Tammuz who died and had to get rescued by his girlfriend Inanna, who was the goddess who went to the underworld. It's a time of things being really kind of grim. Everything's dry and a bit like outside right now, not flourishing. It's, it's kind of a, a scary time in many ways. The only observance during the month of Tammuz is the 17th day of Tammuz. There's a historical-based fast, which is called the 17th day of Tammuz, right? Very excitingly. And the 17th day of Tammuz is linked to what's going to happen in Av. So again, there's kind of a, a pattern, just like the Omer goes through these months. There's another period of mourning here that's correlated to several days in particular, which is the 17th of Tammuz going up until the ninth day of Av. So let's talk briefly about that. Ninth day of Av, Tish Av, is the day that the temple was destroyed, the first temple, very unfortunate, in 586 BCE. It was also the day the second temple was destroyed, even more unfortunate, in 70 CE. It was also the day that the Alhambra decree was issued that expelled Jews from Spain, more unfortunate. Also the day that the Warsaw Ghetto was liquidated. Also the day of any number of other things. The Jews were expelled from England. This is a, it's a horrible day. All the bad stuff happens on that day. We hate that day. It's the worst day of the year. Okay? I mentioned this in a sermon recently, but Greeks still think Tuesdays are unlucky. Right? The reason is because Constantinople fell to the Turks in 1453 on a Tuesday. So Tuesdays are banned, right? even though it's been 500, 600 years. We feel the same way about the, about the ninth day of Av. It's just a bad day. It's a bad day. Bad stuff happened, bad day. As a result, it's the container for all the sad stuff in Jewish history. What we do is we sit on the ground and we read Lamentations, Eicha, which is the saddest book of the Torah. Remind me to come back to the five Megillot to talk more about that. And we don't eat or drink or observe any other of the things that we would do for luxury. And it has ultimately the same restrictions as Yom Kippur. So there's five things you can't do in Yom Kippur. 
All right, you can't eat, drink, have sex, bathe, anoint yourself with oil, counts for bathing, or wear leather. Right? And all those are because they make you comfortable and are enjoyable. And the same applies on Tisha B'Av. So there's two days where there's a full 25-hour no food, no water fast. One is Yom Kippur, the other is Tisha B'Av. Yom Kippur is way more observed. Most Jews, even if they don't do much else, will fast on Yom Kippur. Tisha B'Av is not observed nearly as much. Partially, it's harder to fast. Is it also a full day? Nope, full day. Some people, some, well, it's not one of the minor fasts that's only the sunlight hours. It's a full fast like Yom Kippur, 25 hours long. Some people in modern Israel feel like, well, listen, it's not so sad anymore because, yeah, we're not really moaning the temple and we're back in Israel, so what's the big deal? And there are some people who will only fast part of the day as a recognition of the fact that, like, they don't think it's so sad anymore. It's quite controversial. Regardless, it's definitely not nearly as observed as Yom Kippur. Partially, it's much harder to fast in what is usually July. Right, then in September. So you're both pointing out with Manik Kabbalah that a lot of these events are mentioned, they were deliberately mm. done on the Manik Kabbalah. That's absolutely right. Of the oh, the Goyim knew, right? They knew yeah. the Jews hate this day, let's do it then, right? Which is really mean. But also, I'm kind of glad because if they did another day, then we'd have to observe several days of mourning. So they kind of concentrate all the sad stuff in one day. Yeah, <laughs> Fernand and Isabella like, did their research and they were like, let's really get them, let's do it on the Manik Kabbalah. It's per totally purposeful really messed up. Some evidence the Romans actually knew as well, although it's less clear. So the 17th Tammuz is linked to Ninth of all, because the 17th Tammuz is the day that the walls of Jerusalem were breached. So in the first temple, 586 BCE, we mark the day the walls were breached by the Babylonians, the Jerusalem walls were breached, and then there was a three-week siege, and then on the Ninth of all, they finally destroyed the temple. So it kind of marks the beginning of this period. This period is called conventionally the three weeks, because it's three weeks long. And many people will observe morning rituals heavily during the three weeks, including not shaving, not going to concerts. Some people won't listen to music unless it's a cappella music, right? Like, which seems like torture, really. There's all sorts of ways in which people kind of observe morning rituals. Yeah, a lot of people won't go on holiday. They won't, like, make any new investments. It's like a time when you're really scared and unhappy and miserable, whatever. Um, Ashkenazim who love being miserable do the whole three weeks. A lot of, a lot of Sephardim actually only start on Rosh Chodesh Av, right? So for the first day of Av. So for them, they call it the nine days, right? So you hear some people talk about the three weeks, and some people talk about the nine days. Some people will only observe the nine days. Some will do all three weeks. Some will do both and have it be kind of graded. So it's, it's moderate misery for this part. And then once you hit Rosh Chodesh Av, it's real misery for nine days. Okay. Questions? Yeah, 17th of Tammuz. Sorry, it is, it, it's a minor fast day. It's one of those that you fast during the day, Ramadan style, from sunrise to sunset. No, that's, that's a different one. That's going to be in Tishrei. There's four minor fasts throughout the year. The 10th of Tevet, the 17th of Tammuz, Som Gedalia, and uh, Fast of Esther. Because they apply to everyone. The fast of the firstborn is kind of the fifth, but only applies to the firstborn. If you're not firstborn, you're out. You're good. You don't have to fast. Okay. Does that make sense? Now, what's really crazy is we have now a radical switch that shortly after the Tisha B'Av is another holiday, which is Tu B'Av. And you know from Tu B'Shvat that Tu means what? 15th of Av. So Tu B'Av is... Anyone know? Nope. That's Tu B'Shvat. Tu B'Av is 
All about love. It's kind of a real whiplash. You're like a, less than a week after Tubishvat, you've been sitting on the uh, sorry, not a week after Tish Abav, you've been sitting on the floor reading Lamentations, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, feeling really down about yourself and history. Less than a week later is like Valentine's Day, right? So Tubav historically, and this does go all the way back to the Tanakh, is a day when people would go out and find a partner, uh, and there was a ritual in which everyone would kind of all the young people, basically speed dating, all the young people would go out to the fields. And all the women would wear white dresses, it tells us. And there'd be kind of a, you know, matching system where people would kind of dance and find their partner and then, you know, they get married and live happily ever after. Don't know if it really worked that way. Some sources seem to make it seem like it was more like kind of bride capture where all the men kind of went out and like, I'll take that one, which sounds horrible. Some make it seem a bit more romantic. Uh, Not really clear. But it was certainly a, a time that was celebrated for kind of love and romance, which is really bonkers considering its proximity to, uh, but also kind of nice, right? It's like counterbalances all the sad, depressing stuff to have a holiday all about love shortly after. It is observed kind of casually in, in Israel today as more or less like Valentine's Day is here. People will have a kind of romantic dinner and maybe get a card and whatever. You do see lots of people wearing white dresses. It's really interesting. That part is kind of kept through regardless. Um, but it's not a huge deal, right? It's not a big holiday. Not a Yom Tov, right? By the way, none of these are Yom Tov. The only Yom Tov we really talked about is Pesach. Right? So a lot of people, and this is a common misconception among people who are newer to Jewish life, is, oh, no, I, I can't use my phone on Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not a Yom Tov, right? Lots of things that are in the Jewish calendar are not a Yom Tov. In order to be Yom Tov, it has to be from the Torah, de Oraita, and the Torah has to say, this is a day in which you shall not work. So we actually aren't, aren't eager to add more of those, but there's lots of things we observe that might not necessarily be Yom Tov. Uh, so, like... Tisha B'Av, not in the Torah, right? It's rabbinical. Obviously, it's not in the Torah because the Torah was long sealed by the time this comes about. Although, actually, the Torah does describe the destruction. It, nonetheless, the observance of it isn't there. Eicha is obviously in the Torah. Well, then it's not. 15th of Av, also not in the Torah. It's just something the rabbis tell us about that people did. 17th Tammuz, not in the Torah, right? Lagba Omer, not in the Torah. Yom Atzmaut, definitely not in the Torah, right? So a lot of this stuff happens is more about kind of the customs that have developed since the time of the Torah rather than being about the Torah says this. One big exception we've seen is Pesach and Shavuot. These ones are De'oraita, they're from the Torah, they're Yom Tov, and they're observed quite stringently as a result. Also, these are two out of the three pilgrimage festivals. What that means is that in ancient Israel, there are three times a year that theoretically, I'm not sure how realistic this is, but theoretically, everyone from every place would have gone to Jerusalem in order to observe the festival, and Jerusalem would have turned into like basically Glastonbury. Right? Everyone would have come with a tent and camped out for a week, brought an animal, had a barbecue, chilled, would have been great. So the, when we call them pilgrimage festivals, it's because actually people would have walked there and celebrated the festival with everyone else in Jerusalem, and that's because it's centered around animal sacrifice, which required it to be in Jerusalem. So all three of this. Shavuot was not so much animal sacrifice as much as it was vegetable sacrifice, because you'd bring with you the first fruits from your farm wherever you lived. The third one is Sukkot, which we're going to get to next time, um, and which will actually probably be Sukkot by the time we're talking about it, uh, which happens on the other side of the year. Uh, on many of the holidays, including the pilgrimage festivals, we read a special book from the Tanakh. There are five Megillot. This is the kind of thing that's going to be on the Beit Din question, by the way, for those coming to the Beit Din. There are five Megillot. Megillot means scrolls, right? There are five scrolls that we read at different times of the year from the Tanakh. 
Who knows what the five are? Think about what we call Megillah. Start with that. Esther. Esther. That's the easy one, right? And we call it Megillah Esther for a reason. So we got Esther. When do we read Esther? Oh, I regret that decision. It's a horrible sound. Right, Esther we read on Purim. Correct. What's another one? Just told you one. Ruth is one of them. When do we read Ruth? Shavuot. Right, so on Shavuot, we read the book of Ruth. Why do we read the book of Ruth? Well, it mentions the barley harvest, which is what Shavuot is about originally. And as a result, Shavuot also has a kind of valence about conversion, and kind of lots of people observe Shavuot in that sense as well. Right? So that's two out of five. What's next? Echa, right? Echa. When do we read Echa? We just said Tisha B'Av. Right, Tisha B'Av. That's when we read Echa. It's over here. This is Echa. There's two more. One of which we read at Pesach. One of which we read at Sukkot, which we'll talk about next time. Pesach, we read Shira Shirim, Song of Songs, right, which is all about love and sex. And Sukkot, we read uh, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, which is all about how everything is miserable and nothing ever changes. Right, it's the emo book. It's the best. I love it. Yeah, it's my favorite. Okay, so these are the five Megillot. We read them throughout the year at different times. And they're all kind of small books in the Torah, which are originally, in the Tanakh, sorry, which are often written as scrolls and read as such. Um, and it's helpful to know. You're not going to be able to read that in a thousand years. I can't read that. Okay. You're much better writing it down. Okay, so on Pesach, we read the Song of Songs, which, by the way, makes sense. It's all about nature and love and everything's flourishing and it's kind of sexy. Pesach's very sexy, I guess, with all the, I don't know, constipation and angels killing people or whatever. And on Shavuot, we read the Book of Ruth, about the story of Ruth and the barley harvest and her conversion. On uh, Tisha B'Av, we read the Book of Echa. And uh, the others are Sukkot and Purim, which will be in our next session next time. We have one little bit of that left to do, which is Elul, which is the month we're in now. Congratulations. And wonderfully, nothing happens in Elul. Sort of, but also a lot happens in Elul. Right? The only notable thing is the first day of Elul, which is the new year for animals, right, as we talked about earlier. So Rosh Chodesh Elul is the new year for animals. For some people, this is observed, where like they'll go to a petting zoo, and like there's certain rituals that have resulted from this. But mostly, it's a remnant of a system where you had to count how old your animal was in order to sacrifice it at the temple at one of the other holidays. So it's not widely observed. For most people, Elul is all about what comes after Elul, because Elul was the last month of the year before the year switches, right? There's kind of two halves of the year. This is part one, spring and summer. Part two, which we're going to talk about next time, is autumn and winter. And obviously, just like we had a big deal of the first of Nissan, it's a new year for the nature and for everything that exists and everything that's living. The new year for the kings and the taxes and everything else happens immediately after Elul on the first day of the next month, which is Tishrei, which is Rosh Hashanah. So Elul is all about kind of gearing up towards Rosh Hashanah. Many people will start to take on certain practices in the theme of tshuva. It becomes the beginning of the season of tshuva is really Elul. Many people will do what's called silichot every day. Silichot are um, uh, kind of penitential poems, 
best way to put it, kind of songs that are sung that are in the vein of talking about kind of repentance and ab- absolution or whatever else. Sfaradim do slichot every single day of Elul, as early as possible in the morning. So unfortunately, if you're Sfaradim and you go to Minyan every day, you've got to get up at like 4.30 in the morning during Elul, because you've got to sit there for three hours singing slichot before you even do shachari. Um, Ashkenazim, for once, make themselves less miserable. This is the one exception to the rule, because they actually only start doing slichot the week before Rosh Hashanah. Um, and they notably make a big deal of doing it the last Motzei Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah. So here at Sam's, we only really do Sechot, the last Motzei Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah, which is Saturday night. So Saturday night, if you want to come and hear Sechot, usually it's just Ruth and I. I think you came last year, didn't you? Maybe? No? Um, uh, it's nice. There's it's a couple songs. It kind of gets you in the spirit. It's really like it gets you tuned in to, oh yeah, it's going to be Rosh Hashanah soon. So that's what Sechot is all about. In addition to actually doing Sichot, Elul is all about going through that process of tshuva, apologizing to people you've hurt, and making amends when you've made a mistake. Tshuva and Elul can only work if you do uh, tshuva for things that you've done to other people, right? This is all about, I hurt someone, I made a mistake, I need to make amends for it. This is the time to do it. You have a whole month set aside, but you're meant to focus on doing that. And then Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are much more about your relationship with God rather than other people. The idea is that you should get to Yom Kippur and already feel like you've done everything you need to to make amends with other people, and you can then focus on your relationship with God. So it's really an interesting kind of breakdown of the, the season. You can see summer is really quiet, right? We're going to get to some of the months in the autumn. It's just bam, 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 Tishrei is full, right? Summer is really quiet. There's not much going on. Pesach obviously plays a big role in beginning the springtime and then kind of getting us towards Shavuot. But actually, the majority of what we usually think about as Jewish holidays happen on the other end of the year, which we're going to talk about next time, which is Tishrei. Everything, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, all happen in Tishrei. And then Hanukkah and Purim in the winter. And then as we get back through into the spring, we start to think about Pesach again. So it's actually quite well balanced in some way. These two halves of the year, which start with two different New Years, which start each year, regardless of whether it's 12 months or 13 months, for the last 5,783 years at least.